Welcome to What the Food with Karen Van Barneveld. Much of the time, we mindlessly consume food without really thinking about what's in it and how it affects us. Not only is some food addictive, it also might be unsafe. On our program, you'll find the answers about why food is addictive, how it affects us, and how to find a safe route to better health. Now, here is your host, Karen Van Barneveld. Hey, this is Karen Van Barneveld with WTF, What the Food, where we shed light on otherwise dark truths about how conventional food has become a main focus between sickness and wealth. Today, I have Amanda Hitt from Washington, D.C. with me to talk about the legal aspects of our broken food system and how she and her team work from a different perspective to bring honesty and integrity back to the food forefront. Thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on today. Well, hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My honor. And I want to tell my listeners a little bit about your background. She, Amanda is a the director of the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign, otherwise known as FIC, and she oversees operations and is responsible for ensuring that the FIC fulfills its mission of enhancing food integrity by facilitating truth-telling. Amanda works closely with partner organizations, clients, legislators, and the media to alter the balance of power between the food industry and consumers. She acts to protect the rights of those who speak out against the practices that compromise food integrity and empower whistleblowers and food activists. I might be calling you in the the not-too-distant future for this. Amanda has a background in both law and public health. She graduated cum laude from the University of Baltimore School of Law and received her Master's of Public Health from Johns Hopkins. She's clerked for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, worked in private practice, and taught as an adjunct professor of law. Amanda has worked on Alzheimer's clinical trial studies at the National Institutes of Health, HIV risk communications for the University of Maryland, and served as a domestic violence research interviewer for the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Before joining Government Accountability Project, blah, my, my words are spilling, project in 2008, Amanda worked as a fellow for the Family Violence Prevention Fund. It's now called the Futures Without Violence. And she authored a peer-reviewed law journal article that advocated for the use of public health tools for legal decision-making. She's currently serving on the board of directors for the Food Ingredient Health Research Institute and is admitted to practice law in Washington, D.C. and Maryland. So that's quite a mouthful, Amanda. You've done a lot in your short life. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's that short. I feel so old. My back would seem to indicate I'm I'm aging. (laughs) (laughs) Well, would you be willing to tell our visitors what the Food Integrity Campaign is? Absolutely, it's my pleasure, and um, yeah, I, uh, I guess it's I guess it's just, it's fair to start not with what the food integrity campaign is, but where it comes from, which is the Government Accountability Project. We're a fully funded program of Government Accountability Project, which is um, the nation's leading whistleblower advocacy organization. It was founded forty four years ago, oh. um, and about I guess now eleven years ago. Uh, we started the food integrity campaign because we had an influx of um, food and ag whistleblowers. And we realized there was a a sort of a certain kind of corruption uh, afoot in food and agriculture with um, sort of tentacles that that led us into all kinds of policy areas and issue areas and um, food systems needed its its own advocacy group. And so we founded Food Integrity Campaign and we mm. uh, work with whistleblowers and insiders and employees and uh, employees of conscience uh, to help bring out some of those dirty, dark secrets in the food industry and let consumers know what's really going on with their food. <laughs> well. We both know there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than in front of the scenes with food. And what is a whistleblower exactly? I think that's like this line of work. Yeah, in this line of work, um, well, a whistleblower is 
broadly, you know, it's specific. Well, broadly, it's it's uh, an employee, generally an employee, though, you know, we can call a whistleblower, so maybe community members as well. But for our, for our purposes, we're generally talking about employees who uh, who make disclosures about uh, waste and fraud and abuse of power um, and threats to public health and safety. So these disclosures are, are protected disclosures, and there's a there's myriad of laws, um, state and, and, and federal, that prohibit any kind of retaliation against an, an employee who does, you know, make that disclosure, blow the whistle um, on the waste, fraud, abuse of power, and, and threats to public health and safety. And if, if they are retaliated against, it gives them legal, uh, legal rights where they can um, do anything from, you know, get their job back or, or get damages for, um, you know, lost wages or a, a, any, 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 any number of injunct, injunctive and, and, and legal relief um, with regard to uh, these, these prohibited personnel practices like retaliation or um, uh, uh, that could be anything from blacklisting to ostracizing to pay cuts or removal from a preferred position. So it's a, it's a lot of different, uh, a, whole, a whole umbrella like a, that covers prohibited activities. I think that the important part for your listeners to understand though, is that there is no such thing as a whistleblower law. So um, if you believe that you are about to make such a disclosure or that you've been retaliated for making such a disclosure, you would definitely want to seek some some legal assistance um, because you may have a specific state law that's covering it. Or in many cases, in, especially in the food system, you may have a really strong federal law. And, um, and back in 2009, when we created Food Integrity Campaign, um, one of the things that on the horizon that ultimately did become a law um, was, a, was a whistleblower provision for FDA-regulated industries. So um, that, that gave the private sector uh, new rights that they didn't have before. And then that complemented uh, public sector rights. So government employees who are already had robust uh, whistleblower protections. So um, it's definitely a, t- a patchwork quilt. And so whistleblower can be kind of uh, case dependent. So if you think that might, you might be such a person, it's, it's always good to reach out for legal help. Yeah, I never never even heard about whistleblowing. Um, I think until Aaron Brockovich came out, um, you know, talking about the uh, polluted waters, et cetera. Um, do you know how far back? I mean, I've, I've, I'm aware of dock workers and things like that who have, uh, you know, brought things to light about their employers over the years many, many years ago. How far back do you think this goes? Well, I, I think that it's generally agreed upon in the whistleblower community that the term whistleblower is, uh, was, cre- was developed or first used by Ralph Nader. So that was with consumer protection. Oh. So that would have been the early days of the term whistleblower. Although I understand that Ralph Nader does not want the credit for it. So I, I don't know, but <laughs> he's generally considered the first person to really run with the term whistleblower. Oh. But I think employees of conscience... I mean, I think they've existed from the very beginning. I think sure. you could you could say that the many of the you know many if not all the founding fathers of of the United States were whistleblowers in in a sense, <laughs> blowing the whistle on what they thought was you know an abuse of government power, right? Um, uh-huh. So I mean, I I think you could make quite a few claims of early whistleblowers, but you know, usually um, it's kind of funny that you you know you bring that like well you think of Aaron Brockovich, there's just a you know there's a handful of people right that that you know Edward Snowden for example that's oh, yeah. a whistleblower that people Big know big ones um, or uh, you know I mean there's you know just a handful of, of folks but it's important to understand that you know there are many many whistleblowers doing great amounts of good and changing systems from within every day. So you don't, you don't have to be Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers to be a whistleblower. So hmm. um, you, can, you, can, you can actually create change in your system and maybe not get the name recognition, but make just great advancements in um, really how effective, uh, like when we're talking about the food system, how, how safe and, uh, and wholesome our food is and how properly labeled it is. I mean, and then you can go into, you know, whistleblowers that blew the whistle on, on uh, pesticide um, 
regula- regulation. I mean, mm-hmm. just a lot of great work. Yeah, um, Vanny Harry, who's going to be my guest in February, is I consider her a little bit of a whistleblower for going up against um, uh, Kellogg's and uh, you know a couple of other places for some of the ingredients, and actually them calling them calling her into their office and you know talking to her and and making changes. Uh, Chipotle is another one that she made uh, changes for, or. She didn't make the changes, but anyway, she was the whistleblower for them. You know, so, um, go ahead. I would agree. I would agree. I, if I think that the, I think maybe that's a good, a good place, right? Is that it's something it's, it's how the, how they arrive at the wrongdoing, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. from firsthand knowledge rather than outsider research or journalistic. So they're the source, not the journalist. So that's kind of, that's the, I, I think that's a great way to like, well, what's a whistleblower and what's a journalist, for instance, there's mm-hmm. lots of journalists who uh, blew, blew things wide open, but they're not the source. And, and, right. and that's, I mean, that's kind of important for today's, today's discussion, right? Is that if you want that information, you want to protect those sources and that there is this whole other angle to protecting the integrity of food. And that's giving voice to the people who know what's really going wrong. So for instance, a farmer knows what's going wrong. A meat inspector understands when a, an, a, when a test is not properly being done for food safety. So, or in, in, a, in, a, in a regulator or person within a regulatory agency will know when there's been fraud and labeling. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of the quintessential part is where, how do they arrive? How do they get this information? Mm-hmm. Why don't more, more uh, whistleblowers come forward in the food industry? Well, you know, it, it, there's, you know, there's lots of uh, good reasons, but I, I think the number, number one reason is, well, there's two, right? There's, the, there's two big kind of competing right up at the top reasons. And, and there's one, the, the very, at the very top is a sense of futility. Um, because often by the time someone's um, contemplating going outside of the system. And it's important to note that most employees, 80% or more of employees work within the system first. They go to their supervisors, they go up the chain of command. They don't run to the media or Congress, right? That's not their first step. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, so many people are worn down by inactivity at the top or a sense that nobody cares and nobody's listening. And that's... um, that's that's very real or or even a sense there's also this sort of futility that comes about if if i you know it's i think we've all had this right well if i'm aware of how wrong this is if i understand how bad this is surely other people do too and surely right. they've complained so it's it's sort of like eh, you know like why bother right and that's mm-hmm. that's very real and right up there in the same sort of you know level of like what goes on in the mind of a whistleblower is what what brings them usually uh, to us for legal support, which is uh, retaliation. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, I very, very just touched the surface of what sort of workplace retaliation could look like. But in, in terms of food systems, you have to, you know, you have to know a little bit about these industrial, industrial uh, modern food, right? So very often the, let's say the plant that manufactures the food mm-hmm. is maybe the only game in town. So it might be a, an economically devastated area, but for this plant, nobody would have jobs. Right. So if a whistleblower comes forward to go up against this plant, then there's a real, um, a real possibility that, um, that other people could, uh, be mad at the whistleblower. Like, right. well, you know, Kellogg's is the only employer and you're chasing them out of town. So what happens to, you know, it's like, okay, well, you've got very basic, but awful threat to your, your, your career. But mm-hmm. what if you've got a threat to your life? Right. Um, and, and I, and I, I don't want to over uh, sell this, you know, or make this sound, you know, add a, add a, a patina of, of just hyperbole, but um, I'm not going to, I can't tell you that I, I haven't seen people go up against really uh, scary um, threats to of physical violence for just mm. coming forward. So 
Um, and the other, I mean, another thing, um, again, you'd have to kind of understand, uh, you know, the territory of, of, of food. Uh, a lot of times these, um, these institutions, these companies, these corporations, they, they remain profitable because they use an immigrant workforce. Mm. And very often that immigrant workforce is an undocumented immigrant right. workforce. Right. So you can imagine if you're an undocumented worker, so now you're going to lose your job, but what if you get deported? Yeah. And, and moreover, your family's probably employed by that same employer too, or at least, you know, someone, you know, so they're going to lose their job too. So that's, uh, there's a lot of sort of um, inherent hurdles to food work. Um, it's not just, you know, uh, white collar SEC stuff, although we do that too. A mm -hmm. lot of this is we're talking about, you know, work a day people who are not very incentivized to put it all on the line uh, to protect other people, yeah, even though so they those, may want to. Yeah, those feelings of futility are very grounded in truth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I, that's. I think that, I mean, I'm sorry to cut you, as I, right. uh, but yeah, I think that just to follow up on the, you know, the immigrant workforce, I think it's safe to say that's precisely why that workforce is preferred. Mm-hmm. Because they're not going to talk. So is it better to remain anonymous? Well, okay. So that's an, that's an interesting uh, point you bring up, right? Um, so anonymity, <laughs> while difficult for some to say, is even more difficult for whistleblowers to pull off. Um, they are... Uh, because of, of what I said earlier, remember, most people don't just run to the media or to Congress. They, mm -hmm. they start making their concerns known within their chain of command. Mm. So if you have already started down that road and then something comes in, you know, a regulator is like, oh, we're investigating an anonymous complaint. Well, people are going to be like, well, that's Karen. She's been griping about that for weeks. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, a lot of whistleblowers don't realize it, but the, the cookie, the cookie trail leads directly to them. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is a good, a, a good, like kind of, it, it seems the opposite, right? So you would say, oh, well, uh, the goal should be to remain anonymous. I'm going to get a lawyer and they'll, they'll, you know, do this all anonymously and no one will know it's me. It's our finding, having been in this game for 44 years, that the, the safest whistleblower is the most well-known whistleblower. Um, mm. You'll, you know, going back to, you know, we talked about Edward Snowden, right? Well, you know, people, well, he's going to get killed. Well, if he does, Everybody in the world will know that he was, you know, he was killed probably, you know, if it, for his truth telling. Right. 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 So that's true of, 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 you know, Susie Q too. Right. She's also the more well-known she is. If they start firing and to bring her down or start retaliating against her, then people will know that that was the source of the retaliation, not some right. sort of bona fide reason why she got terminated or, uh, you know, uh, removed from the plant to another plant, you know, a hundred miles away or any, any number of things. So we actually, it's, it's the opposite. We would rather you fly very high and conspicuously with the help of media and part solidarity, mm. people who um, maybe unlikely partners. So if you're in the meat industry, you might be surprised that when you blow the whistle on uh, contamination and, and meat, your allies might actually become vegans, right? Um, <laughs> and you may never have thought in a million years that as a rancher you are, or as a, a chicken farmer, you would ever want the help from vegans. But actually, that's a level, that's a type of solidarity that we, we try to facilitate because um, you will find unlikely partners speaking up against your, your, old, uh, your old love, right? Your old career um, if, if you find fault in it. So building out that solidarity is critical. Finding, uh, finding allies even in unlikely places to support you in the event something bad does happen. I mean, that's the soft, you know, feathery pillow that you want to land on. Mm-hmm. So um, what would be the, the biggest motivation for a whistleblower after they've gotten to their breaking point? What do you think that is? Or what have you found that that is? Well, for me, it's, it's been always the same. <laughs> um, I, I have not, I mean, I, I don't have, I, I'm trying to think, and I'm like, I don't think I've, I've ever had a client that ever proved me wrong on this. So this goes back a little to what we were just talking about, the unlikely allies. Whistleblowers, just generally, right? If you're employed in that industry, 
you don't have a problem with the industry, right? You don't become a chicken farmer because you don't believe in uh, killing animals, right? You're, you're very aware of, of what happens in a, a slaughter plant. You're very aware of where these chickens are going and you don't have a problem with that. What you have is a problem with the rules not being followed. And, um, and that's generally where I find my clients is that they're not frustrated by the societal impact necessarily, while though some may be, you know, as well. They're, what they're mad about is, is that, you know, somebody's just not playing by the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, they don't have a problem with the game. They have a problem with people not operating within the agreed upon structure. So these folks generally tend to be um, a little more conservative leaning politically, um, but certainly uh, conservative in their approach to things. They're very measured people. They're usually quite interested in, um, in, in you know, fairness and uh, justice. So they usually find us at the point where they start to lose faith in the very system that they had participated in. Yeah. So that's where we, most of my clients are, that's where they're reaching out for help. Well, I just uh, watched something recently and um, was informed that, well, through, through watching, I'm not going to mention the name, but that some of the people who work on the line in these uh, CAFOs for chickens, concentrated animal uh, feeding operations for chickens, um, they work them so fast and so furiously, furiously on the line that they can't even take a break to go to the bathroom. So they wear diapers while they're working. Have you heard that? Oh yeah, uh, this this has been a sort of a known. This is before they increased line speeds. By the way, that that report, um, I believe that was an Oxfam report uh, that really went into details about. Um, this phenomenon of adult diapers in uh, poultry slaughterhouses Ugh. and um, in that the, the workers were not relieved even to take a bathroom break uh, throughout the day. So the only way they could do it was to, to wear adult diapers. And again, I, I just want to point out that was before the United States government said, let's make the lines go even faster. Uh, that, and and I, I think that that's, that gives you an indication really why we need whistleblowers, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's been my experience that our government watchdogs just aren't barking. Um, And uh, if you don't have these insiders and and these truth tellers and, and employees of conscience from within these systems, there's so much that just gets sort of, you know, pushed along, you know, we just, in, in, and I, you know, I want to be that person, but it's, it's, it's profit over public health. Um, they, they, these companies are designed to profit at the expense of these workers who are simply not expensive. They're not that valuable, but understand too, that they're doing it at the expense of consumers too. There is a level of risk that the food industry is willing to take to make money. And I think people would be shocked, um, especially since we've been conditioned to believe, you know, institutions like FDA and USDA, they've got our back, you know, and these companies are, are well regulated and um, they wouldn't do anything or they'd get caught. Well, I, I am actually going to suggest that they, they have the cost of getting caught built in already and yeah. they're willing to take that risk. Yeah. Well, personally, if I was having a um, a piece of chicken and I understood what was going on behind this, the scenes, I would never eat a piece of chicken again. And, well, I don't anyway most of the time. <laughs> well, there you and go. if I do, it's all organic. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna come up here to a break pretty quick, and um, you can find more uh, information about Amanda on Facebook. You, what is your social media platform, Amanda? Uh, we're we're um, Food Integrity Campaign. You're not you on can, Facebook or Twitter? Yes, we're, we're on Facebook and Twitter and also um, in, uh, Instagram as well. Awesome. And that's the Food Integrity Campaign. That's correct. And you okay. can find us on YouTube as well um, at Food Integrity Campaign as well. Cool. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to talk more about how politics influence what we eat. And also some stories that Amanda has, at least one story that she 
relayed to me recently about an athlete and his foray into what's what's really in food in chicken in particular so join us when we come back become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you confused about what to eat? What's really in some of the foods you've been eating and how they affect the health of you and your loved ones? Did you know that what people eat can affect addictive behaviors? How did food get to be so confusing, so toxic, and so addictive? When and why did this start? What is safe and where can I find it? Join Karen Van Barneveld and her guests to find answers to many of your important questions on What the Food? Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. You are listening to What the Food. To reach Karen Van Barneveld or her guest on the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to karen at whatthefoodfilm.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back to What the Food, WTF. I'm with Amanda Hitt director of the Food Integrity Campaign in Washington, D.C. And I have to say that when I, when I read your name, I think of the Hit Squad. I'm sure that's never come up before, right? Never, ever. <laughs> no one's ever made that connection. Never. Okay. Well, I won't try to be redundant then. <laughs> what, what have whistleblowers told you that health-conscious consumers might be surprised to discover is in our food? Well, I mean, um, so I, I guess that, you know, you alluded to it before the break. I, I think the, um, the best thing about working with whistleblowers is sharing their stories. And um, their their anecdotal inside information is is their source, right? That's that's what they have, and um, you know that's my that's my team, right? Those those are that's my hit squad. Are these? Mm-hmm. I'm surrounded by these incredible whistleblowers, great advocates too. My my coworkers are pretty awesome too. But it, it, these uh, these whistleblowers really do. Um, bring a lot to light. Uh, but th- this story that I'm, I, the one that I, I would like to tell you about is actually not a whistleblower per se, but an individual who I was able to help. And he's an Olympic athlete named Jerrion Lawson. And uh, Jerrion's um, agent and his attorney had reached out to me uh, because I had uh, done a considerable amount of work uh, showing sort of the um, the problems in the USDA's uh, Food Sa- uh, Safety Inspection Service, which is where the meat inspectors are housed in the USDA. And, mm-hmm. and um, they have, over the years, uh, relayed some really, I mean, to, I guess deficits would be the nice way to put it, but <laughs> but just out and out, like, 
ridiculousness um, with with fail, failures in inspection and failures to really heed these uh, inspectors' warnings and properly staff and, you know, give them the tools that they need to be effective and protect them against the plants themselves, right, they, that they're re- regulating from retaliating against them. So mm-hmm. I've done a, had a pretty extensive body of work on that. And Jerrion's uh, lawyer contacted me because uh, Jerrion uh, tested positive for a, a steroid um, that um, you know was was is associated with doping, but um, Jerrion was suggesting that in, in, it was not in fact um, a uh, it was not in fact his illegal doping that ca- caused him to test positive, but rather it, it's actually the beef that he ate the night before, just hours before he was tested. Mm -hmm. So I guess at first blush, if you're anything like me and you get a little cynical, (laughs) you're like, (laughs) well, yeah, right. Uh, But if you know anything about the beef industry, it's not that far-fetched at all. And so they had contacted me um, to ask me if I would assist them with Jerrion's case. And um, it was interesting because Jerrion is not the only elite level athlete who's fallen into this strange uh, steroid positive um, camp who are absolutely certain that they had not participated in doping. And um, in in this case, we were able to, to explain to the tribunal, the Olymp, you know, the doping, uh, the, 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 arbitration, you know, group um, uh, regarding Jerrion, how in fact he was able to ingest this, uh, this steroid through meat consumption. And as it turns out, um, I, I, this is probably, well, maybe not, you have probably a pretty enlightened group of food, uh, <laughs> food listeners, but the average person would be shocked mm-hmm. to know that you do not know what country your beef is coming from. Yeah. You don't know. And they'll say, but what it says on the label, you know, made in the USA or product of USA. Well, as it turns out, um, that label is only suggesting that at some point in the in the processing that that burger or piece of steak ha- was either fab was somehow fabricated in the United States. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't mean that it was born and grown and raised and, and slaughtered in the United States, mm-hmm. only that maybe it was formed into a steak right in the United States. So yeah. that labeling um, is, it, you know, it's it, it's uh, it, it's the, the term that we use is cool. It's country of or- origin labeling, and uh, U.S. ranchers have um, been obviously very upset uh, that they cannot identify their higher quality, higher level meat that would not have had that steroid in it mm-hmm. um, uh, had it been properly labeled. So it, it, his Jerry's story, while sounds it sounds outrageous, is completely um, confirmed. Um, that when you eat meat, even if you think it's from the United States, it can in fact have been uh, processed in a way that is not at the same level or standard and may include products that quite frankly are, you know, in many cases banned in the United States. So um, that's just one man's story of, of redemption, but I should, I should just sort of mention this. I mean, if there's any if any athletes out there, um, you know, Jarian was under the impression that, you know, he he was in training, you know, uh, he he was at a Japanese restaurant and he ordered just steak like he just wanted a steak bowl. Right. He was uh-huh. getting his protein. <clears throat> so here he is thinking he's doing something healthy for his body that will be, you know, that that will keep his engine going well, when in fact he was doing something that could have meant the absolute end of his entire athletic career. Right. Um, and, and Olympic track and field athlete doesn't have the chance to participate in the ice capades if he, if he fails to make it to the Olympics, you know, <laughs> um, his options, it were pretty much done. I mean, it went from world cup class elite Olympic athlete to working at Subway, basically. I mean, it's, there's not a lot of in between. So I, I, I like Jerrion's story, um, by I, 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 as far as you know, really emphasizing what you don't know can hurt you, and when it comes to food, labeling is not what you think it is. So, um, 
I just, I, 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 I think that uh, uh, just, to, just to, to note, uh, Jarian was many, many thousands of people, over 500,000 people signed a petition to bring back country of origin labeling. And Jarian and, and a whole slew of Olympic athletes joined in that call mm-hmm. so that um, people can know what the heck they're eating. But what happened to that? I'm sorry, what happened to Jerry? Oh, no, to he the, was coming. <laughs> to the 500,000 people. Oh, we're, we're still in that process. So oh. such, uh, but uh, but I should, I, if I didn't mention it, Jerrion was exonerated and he is competing and, and um, with, it, it, unless something happens, he should be competing in Japan. So um, there is a, that is a, that is a high, that is an ends on a happy note. All right. <laughs> uh, but, and I, I think that we have a good chance. I think we, we have a good chance with con- country of origin labeling um, as well. So. so I, I sure hope so. Well, how do politics influence the quality of the food we eat? Um, well, I would say uh, politics um, is everything. Um, it, it's it, funny that you should bring that up because what I could have also said is maybe in a new administration, we'll have better luck with country mm. of origin labeling. Maybe with a new Congress, we'll have uh, better luck with co- country of origin labeling. Um, but I think just, you know, from that 30,000, uh, you know, foot observation, I-, I think that, you know, as corporate concentration continues, right? And we're, we're building all of into these vertically integrated monopsonies where um, there's a lot of consolidated power those lobbies will continue to put pressure on our politicians mm-hmm. and their, their might is stronger than our bite. Um, so we, uh, I think as, I think as, as voters, we, it's, it's one thing to, uh, politely request, um, that our, our lawmakers do something, um, about, about corporate concentration. I think there's another level of activism and, and that's the decision we make when we put food on our plates. Right. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the food industry is one of those places, you know, um, where you can really impact these corporations through how you spend your money and what you spend your money on. Um, so I, I would say that, it feels a bit like our our politicians are pretty captured right now uh, by big ag and um, big food, and mm-hmm. I think you would probably agree. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I probably would. Probably would. <laughs> um, but there's a you know there's a lot going on, uh, Karen. I just I don't think people think about either um, when you think about how much of food that is created is not even going to human consumption. Yeah. He's just out, outlandishly high. I think it's like something like nine, 85 or something really high percentage. Like, and, and people say, well, oh, well, where is it going? And, and it's going to, to a lot of it is, is going to uh, sort of uh, subsidized crops, right? That might be going into animal agriculture and, and, and inefficient uses of all different kinds. Or if it's corn, it's going into ethanol. I mean, uh, you, it's not a lot of food crops just aren't being eaten. Um, so that's kind of an interesting phenomenon because those are the very same crops, interestingly enough, that are insured. So Mm. farmers who want to do something different take huge personal risks going outside of the dominant paradigm. Mm. So when you're looking at food quality, you're not looking at, at farmers who are incentivized to make quality food but rather these sort of subsidized, um, you know, uh, crops. Monocrops. Um, monocrops, right. Which co- every flea comes with that dog. Um, and that's a, and that's maybe like a, a different, a different, uh, different guest for a different time about the evils of monocropping. Um, but, but, you know, suffice it to say it's, it's there, that's where the subsidies are. Um, and, it, you know, if let's say you, Let's say you aren't a, you know, you maybe you don't want to eat a lot of red meat or consume a lot of uh, low cost chicken. Maybe you are unsettled by uh, the way that these corporations treat workers or treat the environment or treat animals or fail to label correctly. You have a lot of good reasons maybe why you'd want to turn your back on conventional agriculture. I think you'll find that um, the politics, the politics, of the situation 
are going to make it hard for you to really have access to a free market of food. Um, I, I don't even think, I mean, you think like, well, there's a lot of people who are maybe, you know, on the fence about whether they would like to have, you know, a, you know, a, a, an impossible burger um, or not, you know, maybe they would just rather have the lentils, but, um, but my, I would suggest that you really can't even get you. It's, it's hard to get the price points on, um, on these, you know, meat analogs, even these, these alternatives to eating meat, because it's just, it's not even possible for plant-based initiatives to compete in this highly politicized, um, highly corporate controlled uh, system. So mm. yeah, there's a lot going wrong. Well, why would you say that the big industrial ag system is bad for your health? Well, why I mean, is yeah. Bigger, bigger, better, or local better? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, that's, I would say that in general, diversity is better, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I, and so, and, and if local markets where you can get a fair shake and, and I don't know, get paid what, what your product is worth. I mean, let's go back to chicken because we talked about about how these companies keep the prices down. Well, they keep they have these expendable workers, right? We talked about that mm -hmm. that they're not paying well and they're overworking and I don't know they're all getting sick with COVID because they're crowded shoulder to shoulder in these <sighs> these slaughter places. I mean, it's all kinds of a, a whole parade of wrongs. But the this this parade didn't start at the slaughterhouse. It starts with fundamental unfairness at the farmer level. Um, so if you're a CAFO farmer, a corporate farmer, a corporate poultry farmer, and you run what are called grow out barns or facilities, right? They're more facilities than barns. I and mean, we're looking at 30,000 chickens in each facility. I mean, these are giant place, places where little baby chicks come and then they grow out to become broiler chickens. That's where your $5 deli chicken comes from. But let me explain to you that most of those farmers who are producing those chickens in those barns, they're, they're functioning below the poverty level. Hmm. They, they can't make ends meet. And maybe more, this is less about, you know, uh, it's less about food safety, but food ethics um, although there's certainly in inherent safety issues too to overcrowding chickens um, in, in, in disease and you know, filth and so forth. But the way they treat those farmers is unbelievably cruel. I mean, they're locked into these debt cycles um, where they never can get out and they can never make profit. And very rarely are they even able to uh, use these, these facilities, these great big giant CAFO barns for any other activity than growing chickens. So now they're stuck in this perpetual life of being an underpaid chicken farmer. So, you know, I, that's no kind of life. And, yeah. and there's just not a lot of alternatives again, going back to corporate concentration. So if you say, well, why doesn't that farmer just have some free range chickens? Now, here's the problem. Where are you going to slaughter those chickens? There's no, there's no place to slaughter them because these big companies control every aspect of production, every aspect. So there's no way to transport those chickens, even if you did have a place to slaughter them. And, and, and so there's just not a lot of opportunity for, uh, for these local guys to compete. But where they do compete, I think is worth uh, discussing, especially in light of COVID, right? So um, big is fragile, you know? Um, it's not just, uh, it's big as, you know, it's not a just, it's, it's not, it doesn't feed the world the way that uh, maybe our friends at Monsanto would have us believe. And they're so, <laughs> they're, they're such, they're known for their veracity over at Monsanto. So yes. you would think they'd be telling the truth. But in fact, um, COVID proved otherwise. These smaller uh, chicken uh, facilities that, that are in like the, these, really truly are dying breed, um, they were able to maneuver in a COVID world and stay functional and still provide product to their local, uh, local, local, local community mm -hmm. in a way. And, and you saw in um, like big, big poultry, 
when the slaughter plants started shutting down or reducing production because of massive illnesses among the plant workers during COVID, mm-hmm. what ended up happening was the farmers were told, because now the supply line was cut, it was choked at that point. Mm-hmm. So the farmers were told to cull their, their poultry and, and pork. So they, they euthanized them because there was no way to get them to slaughter because there's no, oh. the slaughter facilities were shut down. Yeah. Well, guess that, guess what didn't happen in the local, in the local farms. They were right. able to easily adjust to COVID, which meant, you know, very effortlessly change the, uh, you know, floor plan of their facilities to make sure that they could ha- provide for social distancing. Um, they kindly provided PPE to their workers, right? Because they're <laughs> decent people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they don't, they don't, you know, listen to a corporate bottom line. They, they mm-hmm. do the right thing. And so there you're seeing like big is fragile. If there hadn't been these local markets, there would have been huge, uh, food shortages. And what we saw is, is they achieved in an environment that surely should have destroyed them. Hmm. Um, but it, they didn't. It really, to me, it, it painted a picture of, of a future that we could have uh, where, where local, could actually, you know, bring efficiency, not just better food, not just better, higher nutrient dense food, but actually greater efficiencies than I think we ever really thought of before. And And, integrity. um, And integrity, right? So it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's, I'm I'm not a Luddite, you know what I mean? I'm not, I've been, (laughs) you know, I'm not trying to, to tell everyone that, you know, all corporations are bad, but in a world that's moving to greater vertical integration, that is where, where the comp- these, these few companies own all aspects of production from chick to chicken nugget, um, that continued movement toward that, it isn't just unethical and uh, profitable because of these uh, externalities like workers, environment, and animals, but they're also, uh, they're also not as efficient as, as these uh, mega companies would like to sell them as. I don't think that that's sustainable in our current environment either. But well, it's, it's, it's interesting, Karen. I, I suspect you hear that a lot too. People will tell people like us, oh, you're crazy. You'll never feed the, feed the world that way. Well, I'm not crazy. And Monsanto and its ilk, <laughs> those in the same sort of category, those proponents of, of big is better, they failed. And we saw it, right? Mm-hmm. We saw one little tiny choke point in the whole system went to, you know, it was, it was shaking and rattling. Now, did it fall apart? No. But I think that when you see the shaking and rattling of, of a bridge, it's then that you should start uh, looking at, at ways to repair the, the, the structure, mm-hmm. um, not after it's already collapsed. I, I think we, this is a wake-up call that oh, we absolutely, need both. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Well, a lot of people are really concerned about the impact of pesticides, speaking of Monsanto. And your, some of your whistleblowers have come forward with stories about the impact on the environment and the health of their communities. Can you tell us a little bit about that in the next five minutes? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, my, I initially got brought into um, pesticides because of the, um, the, the, the GMOs in Hawaii, because there's a oh, 300... Yeah. Yeah, there's a 365-day growing season there. So a lot of the testing on GMOs happens in Hawaii. Um, and so um, local people in, uh, in Kauai were, uh, had contacted me because they wanted to put in buffer zones around their schools and residential mm-hmm. areas. And so that's when I, I first learned uh, about, about that environmental justice issue and how it really did affect um, you know, indigenous people more, um, and that these the areas where this this pesticide drift and, and was happening was happening, not into the you know fancy tourism parts, but the the less uh, affluent areas and uh, with the most vulnerable populations. We're talking about little school children um, being exposed to that. But I I think it's you know it's it's interesting. We talk about pesticides. We we understand that, but. But even the um, environmental dec- um, decimation that occurs from these CAFOs too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've also similarly worked with um, groups in North Carolina that um, are also sprayed by the byproducts of industrial agriculture. And in their case in North Carolina, it's hog waste. Their, actual, their homes are in, and their air is just polluted with 
uh, aerosoled uh, pig waste that's Ugh. being um, sprayed out onto fields, which seems like a great way to get rid of it, except for that it's in the air and it's mm-hmm. cakes on people's houses um, and all over their windows and all over the, their their person. So um, now you're dealing with pig poop drift as well. So great. industrial agriculture is pretty uh, pretty gnarly stuff. Um, and and um, pesticides, while extremely toxic, um, are, are kind of, they were sort of uh, harbingers of, of more environmental justice um, concerns to come. And, and more people are speaking about, out about their proximity to industrial agriculture. Good. More people need to speak out about that. Well, I want to remind our listeners to like our show on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Give us a five-star rating. And you can find out more information about our topics of discussion today on all the top social media platforms. You can click the link on my host page to check out my new cookbook, What the Food, with over 80 delicious and mostly healthy recipes. I've got a few in there that are not quite as healthy with a lot of butter and sugar, etc. You can get a copy of my God Made Organics, Not GMOs book. You can also watch the What the Food 8-minute documentary trailer on whatthefoodfilm.org and make a tax-deductible donation on the site before the year's end. Proceeds from your purchases and donations go toward our documentary work in progress. You can also check out the heavenlyyoga.com here on my host page to subscribe to my 24-7 yoga classes. Or join my partner Mindy and me for a revitalizing retreat at Harmony and Heart Retreats in gorgeous and serene Sedona next year. Just click the banner here on the host page or go to harmonyandheart.com to check out our, our retreats for next year. Very limited availability and tune in next week for my interview with ocean robbins founder of the food revolution network ocean and his father john robbins of the baskin robbins family have been tireless in their efforts to bring better health to the world through eating clean nutritious food for over 30 years and i want to thank amanda for sharing your work and with our listeners and what you and your team do is so, so very important, helping people not only to find their voices, but to keep them. And as always, I remind our listeners to be kind to yourselves. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for joining host Karen Van Barneveld and What the Food. Be sure to tune in for another episode next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.